Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I am sad. This episode and the next few episodes might sound a little bit different. I'm currently on vacation, and I'm visiting my parents back in California, which means I am no longer recording in the closet of my Chicago apartment. Instead, I'm recording in a room in my parents' house, so things might sound a little bit more echoey. I might be interrupted by a dog on occasion. I'm going to do my best to make the sound quality as consistent as possible, but things might be changing for the next few episodes. Bear with me, please. Moving along to the actual podcast. Like I promised at the end of the Sophia of Hanover episode, I'm now going to be jumping forward in time by around a century or so. Instead of talking about royalty with some questionable personal lives, this next study guide series is going to be discussing poets with questionable personal lives because I do love a theme. Yes, this will be the first episode on the British Romantics everyone's favorite bad boys of literatures who just really liked daffodils. Today, I'm going to be introducing the British Romantics and looking at some of the themes of their work and the historic and social background that impacted their work. So this episode is going to be a little bit shorter than a usual episode. Don't worry, next week we'll go back to the more traditional full-length episode. You may or may not have read excerpts of work by British romantics in school, especially if you ever took AP Lit or a poetry class while you were in high school. You probably know some of their names, but if you don't, this study guide involves a revolution, an insane king, a love for the medieval, and, as always, sex. Let's begin. Let's start off with the question, who are the romantics? The most simple answer is they're a group of English and some Scottish poets and writers who are going to be writing generally between about 1789 and let's say 1820 for convenience's sake. Of course, with any artistic theme, it's really hard to say exactly when it began and ended, but for the sake of this study guide, we're going to say 1789 as our start date and put an end date at around 1820. After 1820, other literary movements are really going to be dominating in England, so that's that. A big thing to keep in mind is the Romantics are not going to be writing about romance. I know. It's super disappointing. It certainly disappointed 15-year-old me, who hadn't quite reached the levels of sarcasm that I'm at now a decade later and just wanted some really good love poetry. Instead, the romantics are going to be covering a bunch of different things, which I will be getting to later. The British romantics tend to be broken into two main generations. The first generation of British romantics includes figures like William Blake, William Birdsworth, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and Robert Southey. The second generation includes figures like John Keats, George Gordon, aka Lord Byron, and Percy Shelley. But there are a ton of other authors who are associated with the romantics, like Mary Shelley, Robert Burns, Lee Hunt, The Lambs, and even Sir Walter Scott, and in some cases, Jane Austen. 
the romantics have a reputation for all dying young and tragic and having crazy personal lives, but that isn't really the case. It's mostly going to be the second generation of male romantics who are going to die young and have crazy personal lives, but we'll get into more of that in individual episodes. Romanticism also doesn't just apply to writing. There's also going to be a romantic movement in both art and music around the same time period, but I'm mostly just going to be focusing on romantic writers because, in my opinion, it's pretty hard to talk about art and music in a podcast. And also, I was an English major in college. I know a lot more about literature and poetry than I do about art and music. Romanticism isn't just going to exist in England. In fact, romanticism really comes out of Germany. We're going to have German romanticism, French romanticism, Italian romanticism, Spanish romanticism, etc., etc. But I'm just really going to focus on the British version of romanticism because it's my podcast. That's what I think is the most interesting, and it's also the area I know the best. Lastly, the term romanticism is mostly going to be applied to these writers after the fact. Most of the writers I'm going to be covering in this series aren't going to necessarily be all that popular in their lifetimes, either because of the ways they were changing writing or because of the drama over their personal and political lives. The idea of romanticism as a literary term doesn't really get labeled until a series of lectures by German critics. August Wilhelm von Schegel between 1808 and 1809, where he talks about the difference between the plasticness of the classics and the organicness of this new style of writing, which he will label romanticism. This is 1808-1809. Our first generation of romantics, like Wordsworth and Coleridge and Blake, will have already reached their heyday by this point. So, With some of those basic misconceptions out of the way, let's talk a little bit about what the main themes and aspects of romantic writing are. What does romantic writing look like? Obviously, each romantic writer is going to be different in his or her own way, but there will be some common themes in their writing. The big thing to keep in mind when we're thinking about the romantics is this idea about emotion, imagination, the natural, and the individual. Sort of across romantics, we're going to see a lot of work focusing on emotion, imagination, and the natural. And there's going to be this underlying theme that individuality is the most important. It's going to all be about the individual, not the collective. And that's going to assert itself in a whole variety of ways. At the time that it's coming out, romantic writing is going to be extremely associated with imagination and by extension, wild scenery, the fanciful, etc, etc. It's going to be very much linked to medieval stories that have to do with chivalry and knights and ladies and King Arthur and all of that fun stuff. The romantics really like those stories and they're going to lean more on those stories as opposed to more classical forms of writing. If you weren't an English major in college, when you might not know what I mean when I say classical forms of writing. Yes, I am talking about writing that's inspired by ancient Greeks and Rome, but English classical writing basically is going to be the main form of literary writing in England from about 1660 until about 1740. 
In classical English writing, stories are meant to be set in one place, in one day, and with one plot. They're going to be pretty limited. And the romantics don't like that. They're going to start pushing against classical forms of writing, which means they're going to get quite a bit of criticism from contemporary critics. Classical writing isn't the only thing the romantics are going to be pushing against, however. They're also going to be pushing against rationalism, the scientific revolution, and the enlightenment of the late 1600s and early 1700s. In case you didn't take AP Euro, or in case you slept through your AP Euro teacher's lectures on the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment is basically this philosophical movement that takes off in the late 1600s and up until basically the French Revolution that's saying humans should use reason and rationalness to think. We shouldn't measure things. We shouldn't just take things off of faith. And it's going to inspire a lot of really key philosophers and thinkers like John Locke, Baron Montesquieu, Voltaire, Rousseau, etc, etc. And the Romantics aren't that into either the Enlightenment or rationalism. This isn't to say that the Romantics are like, let's throw out all science, gravity is stupid, the sun isn't the center of the solar system. That's not the case at all. Instead, the romantics really want people to go back to focusing on feelings and emotions. They feel like the Enlightenment and, by extension, rationalism were too dead and too cold. Instead of only focusing on reason, people should feel things. Because the imagination is just as good, if not more important, than reason. That being said, the romantics are going to take some ideas away from Enlightenment thinkers. There is going to be some inspiration. For example, a lot of romantics are going to be very inspired by David Hume's ideas of fragments and impressions, and quite a few romantics are going to like Jean-Jacques Rousseau's idea that people are inherently good. The romantics do tend to be fairly optimistic about human nature, which will lead them to be socially liberal both in their writing and their lives, which is why quite a few of the romantics, especially some of the later ones, have very juicy personal lives. But like I said, I'll be talking about these juicy, juicy personal lives in individual episodes. Romantics also are going to really embrace nature. By the mid-1700s, we're starting to see people move from farms and proto-suburbs into cities. A big reason for this is the rise of early industry, especially in England. Romantics don't like this. They don't like the idea of urban centers being the center of culture. Instead, romantics feel like nature is more ideal than the city because in nature, there are no constraints of civilization. People are, people are able to be free in nature, and freedom is the best thing. The romantics really hate the artificial, whether it's something like cities or artificial institutions, which the romantics would consider the monarchy and the church to be. So within the romantics, we're going to see a huge push against the church 
and the monarchy. This doesn't mean that all the romantics are atheists. For example, William Blake is going to be super religious. Instead, a lot of the romantics just wanted people to be able to have their own relationships in the world and are going to lean more towards individual spiritualism. They don't want there to be one single organized church that's telling everyone what to do. We see this push towards individualism throughout romantic writing. There's this big idea that it should be up to the reader to interpret. It's merely the job of the author to help the reader shape their own unique perceptions and not tell them literally what's going on. Romantics are also going to be focused on other cultures outside of England and Western Europe. In some cases, this is going to be looking back in time towards the medieval ages and those chivalric poems for areas of inspiration. The Middle Ages are really going to play a huge role for the Romantics. In other cases, it's going to be looking further east. A lot of Romantics, such as Lord Byron, are really going to turn to the Middle East and East Asia as sources for inspiration. And yeah, it is pretty appropriative. I think in 2019, we can recognize that stealing bits and pieces of a culture because you find it interesting and exotic maybe isn't the greatest idea. The Romantics are also going to be really interested in the supernatural, so we are going to see quite a bit of crossover between romantic writing and gothic fiction. The most famous example of this obviously is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but we also can see it in other pieces of romantic writing, such as The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. The last big theme to know about romantic writing is this idea of the sublime and the picturesque. Unless you were an English major in college or you've read a lot of early 19th century writing, you might not know what either of those two terms mean in a literary sense. Basically, the sublime is anything that creates a feeling of terror and or wonder. It's usually nature-based. So back when I was teaching high schoolers in California, my prime example of the sublime would be the top standing at the top of Half Dome at Yosemite and looking out. It's beautiful. It creates a huge amount of wonder. That's sublime. But the sublime could also be terrifying. An awful rainstorm, a dark forest, that is also sublime. As long as it creates the strong feeling, it is sublime. The picturesque, on the other hand, tend to be landscapes that are interesting, but don't necessarily cause the strong emotions. The picturesque is definitely going to be a little bit more superficial than the sublime. So it might be a really nice sunset that's pretty but not the most amazing wonder inspiring sunset you've ever seen. Or maybe like a lake with some cute swans on it. It's nice, it's interesting, but it's not creating that strong emotional response. Romantic writers are going to be describing both sorts of landscapes, but obviously they're going to be spending a little bit more time on the sublime because of that strong emotional component. During their lifetimes, readers and critics just don't know how to respond to all of these themes and ideas that the romantics are bringing up. As a result, quite a few of the romantics are going to be pretty badly mocked and poorly reviewed by critics, especially Wordsworth and Keats. 
the focus of imagination especially is going to be really shocking for the time period. Yes, obviously, fiction has existed in the English language. If you are a member of the Patreon and listen to the Tangent Cast on Afroben, you will have known that novels have been written in English since about the 1680s. But focusing purely on emotion and imagination, that is a whole new thing. And it is really, really scary for the English public. So those are sort of the big themes and aspects of romantic writing. Obviously, not every single romantic is going to hit every single theme. Each romantic is going to be doing things a little bit differently. Some are going to be writing shorter poems. Some are going to be writing full-length novels. But we are going to be seeing quite a bit of overlap in the themes I've covered. The next thing I wanted to discuss is the historic and social background that the romantics rise out of. Because artistic and literary trends don't just emerge out of a vacuum. I think that's something really important to remember and something that sometimes gets skimmed over in both history and English classes. Obviously, the major historical event that's going to impact all of the romantics is the French Revolution. There's a reason I'm personally starting out the Romantic Era for the sake of these study guides in 1789. Obviously, in this episode, I'm not going to be covering the entire French Revolution. That would be absurd. Um, Even though I've taken a few classes on the French Revolution in college, I am by no means an expert. If you want a really great look at the French Revolution, I would highly recommend Mike Duncan's series on it and his Revolutions podcast. It's season three. It's so good. But for the sake of today and this episode, let's do a quick little background on the French Revolution. Basically, by the 1780s, France is a mess. The government is hugely, deeply in debt and needs money. King Louis XVI recalls the Estates General for the first time in over 100 years. And the Third Estate, the estate that's supposed to represent everyone who isn't a priest or a noble, is like, hi, we'd like a say in what's going on in the country. Right when that's going on, on July 14th, 1789, we have the storming of the Bastille, which probably was the official start of the French Revolution in any European history class you may have taken in high school. At the beginning, the French Revolution is going pretty well. We have a National Assembly that is passing all of these new politically liberal laws. We have the Declaration of the Rights of Man. The king is still on the throne. It looks like we might have a constitutional monarchy, a la England after the Glorious Revolution. Speaking of England, how did the English people, like our romantics, feel about the French Revolution? Oh my gosh, Amelia, that's such a good question. Basically, in England, at the beginning of this whole revolution, there is a bit of sympathy for the French revolutionaries. A lot of people in England feel like the French court is too frivolous and needs to be whipped back into shape. Also, England does have a more democratic tradition, thanks to the whole glorious revolution and English civil wars. England has been a constitutional monarchy for about a hundred years, so they do have sympathy for some of the ideas that the French revolutionaries are fighting for. And then, from a more 
more practical standpoint, the French Revolution is a really great way to internally destabilize France and make it less of a player on the European stage. The English government would like that. A weaker France means a more powerful England. So for various reasons, many people in England don't necessarily hate the French Revolution when it kicks off. But then, by the early 1790s, it starts taking a more violent and, shall we say, terrifying direction when the revolutionaries under a little guy named Robespierre start cutting off people's head. We have the whole reign of terror thing in England, as well as other European countries, start getting involved and invading France. And we have the beginning of a series of wars that will culminate in the Napoleonic Wars. So, how do the Romantics feel about all this? The first generation of Romantics lived through the Revolution, and they really like the Revolution at the beginning. They see it as a way for the average person to push against the establishment and artificial institutions like the monarchy and towards a pure, more fair democracy. Remember, at the early 1800s, the idea of democracy where every man gets to vote regardless of how much money or land he has is still seen as politically radical and dangerous even the u.s hasn't fully embraced universal manhood suffrage that won't happen in the u.s until about the 1820s as a result of this the first generation romantic embrace of the french revolution makes them seem really radical if not dangerous after louis XVI gets his head cut off a lot of the romantics become less optimistic about the french revolution for example william wordsworth becomes pretty disillusioned by france's potential by the mid 1790s and then once napoleon comes on the scene the romantics are like yeah no we don't support this. First-generation romantics feel like Napoleon is a tyrant, he's too pro-establishment, he's trying to restore some of those older artificial institutions like the church. So by about the end of the 1790s, early 1800s, the first generation of romantics really have lost interest in revolution via political means. Yes, they still do want to change the world for the better. They just don't know if politics is the way to do that necessarily. While the romantics, especially of the first generation, are going to have strong political opinions, they're always going to be more on the sidelines. For example, William Blake probably never ever voted for a single parliamentary election. The second generation of romantics, however, are going to grow up during and after the French Revolution. They're not going to be on the ground the way the first generation was, but they're going to be super influenced by the French Revolution and maybe won't see the negative sides of it the way the first generation did. Thanks to the French Revolution, there are going to be pretty repressive politics in England, so the second generation of romantics are really going to push against said repressive politics. For example, we're going to have Lord Byron, who is going to serve in Parliament. He only gives three speeches, but two out of those three speeches are speaking out against government policies. One 
of which is a government policy that restricts workers, and one of which is anti-Catholic policies in Ireland. Byron is then going to go to Greece to help fight for Greek independence, which I think really shows the level of influence that the French Revolution had. Spoiler alert, this fight for Greek independence is going to end really badly for Byron. Meanwhile, both Percy Shelley and John Keats are going to be super anti-monarchy. Shelley is going to be much more um, overtly anti-monarchy. He's going to be very political. And in some cases, it's really going to get him in trouble. He's going to be censored. It's going to be really messy. But France isn't the only government that's kind of in upheaval at the time, and that's going to be influencing the romantics. Let's quickly talk about the English government. First of all, when the romantics, especially the second generation of romantics, are writing, the English monarchy is kind of a bit of a hot mess. The current king, George III, has pretty severe mental illness, most likely brought on by porphyria, a genetic disease that he suffered from, and he can no longer rule, so his very unpopular son, also named George, because the House of Hanover is really creative with names, takes over as regent from 1811 to 1820. The government of England at this time is going to be under the prime ministership of William Pitt the Younger. I mean, obviously, William Pitt the Younger isn't going to be prime minister for the entire Romantic era because that would be like 40 years worth of prime ministership, which would be crazy and absurd. But William Pitt is going to be the dominant political figure, and he's going to be inspiring politics in England throughout the time period. William Pitt is going to be leading England in the fight against France and then against Napoleon. He's going to be all about the English economy. Let's think about that. A wartime is going to help the economy. You need to produce things in order to fight. So it's going to be a huge boom for the English economy, which is going to make the wealthy very, very happy. During times of economic prosperity, the average Joe on the street is going to be doing decently well and probably isn't going to complain all that much. They're less likely to embrace radical social ideas which is good for William Pitt. He is able to keep a fairly tight fist on things. He's also going to use fears over the revolution in France to push against various reforms at home. We're going to see a fairly repressive English government in this time period. There are going to be a lot of limits against things like freedom of speech and freedom of the press, which doesn't exactly thrill the romantics who definitely lean towards the liberal, if not radical side of things. And as a quick side note, when I say liberal in this context, it means something very different than liberal in 2019. Liberal in the 1800s means believing in laissez-faire economic policy. So you think businesses should be able to do whatever the heck they want, but also believing in freedom of speech, freedom of the press, individual freedoms. Honestly, 19th century liberalism kind of looks like modern day libertarianism. It's not an exact match, but for today's podcast, it's working just fine. This isn't the only drama going on in England. We also have drama in Ireland over possible Irish emancipation. For the first time in quite a while, it looks like Irish people will actually have a say in things. We might even let Catholic people do things like get an education and vote. But William Pitt says, 
no, no, you naughty children. So in short, English politics during the time period of the Romantics, pretty repressive, really good for the economy, not so good if you want any social reform. So let's talk real quick also about the social background that the Romantics are living in. A really big thing to remember is the Romantics are living in a boom for the rise in literacy. By 1815, England has gotten rid of a tax on newspapers, which means it's a lot cheaper to make newspapers and to distribute newspapers. The number of publications in England is going to skyrocket. And because of the Napoleonic Wars and what's going on in France, people want to know about the news. And newspapers at this time period aren't just going to have breaking news stories. They're also going to have things like poems, which is really helpful if you're a young poet who wants to get your revolutionary works out there. In addition, thanks to new technology and new modes of transportation, it's a lot cheaper to make and spread both books and newspapers. So we're also going to see a rise in libraries. Lastly, by 1780, copyright laws in England have been reformed, so suddenly we have a flood of cheap books on the market. All of this means, one, more people are reading, and two, there are many more opportunities to get published, which is very exciting if you're a young writer. So that's sort of what's going on in terms of literary culture. In terms of social culture, a big thing to know about this time period, especially the second half of the Romantics, is they're living in what's known as the Regency because, like I already said, George III can't rule. His son, George IV, has taken over as regent. This is the time of Jane Austen. This is the time of those lightweight Roman-inspired dresses and the rise in the dandy look for men. I will post some photos of what a Regency dandy would look like on the website sadgirlstudyguides.com, but also like think of the awful love interests like Wickham in in Jane Austen movies. Dandyism is huge. It's all about being precise but over the top. And some romantics hate it, but some, like Lord Byron, are really going to embrace it and become major dandies. And a big reason why dandies are able to take off is because of a rise in industry. We're in the early years of the Industrial Revolution. Mass-produced goods, especially mass-produced clothing, are more available. This means that it is easier to go out and buy 35 different cravats so you can perfectly fold your cravat. It means you can go out and buy a different ribbon for each day in the week. On some, in some respects, industrialization is great for England. It helps with this economic boom. People are able to buy more stuff. You have more options. You can start to individualize your look a little bit more. You don't have to wear the same dress every day. You can wear a different dress than your BFF. But on the other hand, industrialization isn't great. A lot of things are mass-produced, so goodbye individuality. And early factories have terrible working conditions, and really rely on child labor. The romantics don't love industrialization. Some romantics think it's bad because it ruins people's individuality, and some romantics are like, 
hey, child labor kind of sucks. We should improve working conditions. No matter what side they fell on, whether it's for the more practical, we're killing people reason, or the more idealistic, yay individuality reason, romantics aren't going to be pro-industrialization. The last big social trend that's going to impact the romantics is the rise of evangelical Christianity in England. These evangelical Christians are going to be much stricter. They want religion to play a larger role in day-to-day life. And in that respect, like the romantics, they're pushing against the Enlightenment. Because remember, the Enlightenment says people shouldn't be so based on faith and religion. And the evangelicals are like, no, yeah, we should return to being a more religious society. We should get rid of that scandalous worldly literature. And on Sunday, everything should be closed except churches. The evangelicals also are going to push against the perceived immorality of the rich. They think the rich are too focused on making themselves wealthy and as a result are hurting the rest of the country. In some respects, the romantics and the evangelicals have some things in common, like the hatred of the Enlightenment and criticism of the wealthy, but a lot of romantics think the evangelicals are really hypocritical. They feel like the evangelicals are too focused on religious issues, like slavery, which I would argue is a pretty big issue, and aren't focused enough on day-to-day issues like starving children in factories. And then there's a little fact that evangelicals really don't like romantic writers, especially Byron and Shelley. They think they're too worldly and too scandalous and would like to shut them down. Thank you very much. So that's sort of a broad social and historical background for what the romantics are emerging out of. Obviously, each of these points could be a study guide on their own. I could talk about the rise of evangelicalism in England and its impact on things like the slave trade for hours. I could talk about Regency faction for days. The Industrial Revolution in England could be its own study guide. Same with the government under William Pitt. But for this episode, I just wanted to do a quick overview so that you could understand what society the romantics are coming out of and what society they're going to be commenting about, because I think it is important to have that background to understand a brand new literary movement. Next time, I'll go back to the more traditional study guide form. I'll return to doing a study guide on an individual, starting with the granddaddy of British romantics himself, William Blake. As always, the podcast has social media. You can check us out on Twitter at Sad Girl Study Pod. If you want some really great dank history memes, check out the Instagram at Sad Girl Study. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. And if you want to help the podcast in a more financial way, we do have a Patreon. There are various membership tiers. And if you join at the $5 a month level or above, you get access to twice a month bonus episodes, aka tangent casts, where I talk about people, places, or things that don't quite fit in to the larger scope 
of the podcast. Any donations you make are super appreciated. As always, the best way to help the podcast grow is to subscribe or tell a friend. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, so please hit the subscribe button and please let us know how we're doing. Rate or review or else, I'll be sad. Thank you.